Working Cows Podcast, Episode 53. Welcome to the podcast that gives producers a platform to discuss and share paradigm-challenging practices. Practices that have increased the effectiveness of their operation and the joy that their families have received from this lifestyle. Howdy, everybody. It's Clay Connery, host of the Working Cows podcast, brought to you by the Global Ag Network. We have on the show today, Greg Judy. Greg is a guy who has been making a living as a grazer for a number of years. Greg is the author of a couple of books, No Risk Ranching, Custom Grazing on Leased Land, and Comeback Farms, Rejuvenating Soils, Pastures, and Profits with Livestock Grazing Management. Greg has been one of the guys that I've wanted to have on the show for quite a while and uh, reached out to him and got in touch with him, and we are lucky enough to have him with us here today. So, Greg, Judy, thanks for joining me on the Working Cows podcast. You're welcome. I'm glad glad to be here. I would like to start off by getting your perspective on some of the challenges facing young people looking to get started or anyone looking to get started in the ranching industry today. Yeah, that, that's a great question, Clay, and it comes up a lot. I mean, there's a lot of young people out there who would love to get back on the land. And, of course, the, the biggest uh, hurdle to that is the cost of the land and the availability of land, you know, when we look across the United States. And, you know, so my, my answer to that is you've got to be uh, free enough that you can go to where there is land available and I get this a lot. You know, people are like on the East Coast where there's millions of people. And we can't find land. I'm like, you're not going to find any land. Not when you're in a huge metropolitan or If you're within an hour of a town that's, you know, three or 400,000 people, you're probably not going to find 100 acres of grass that you can lease. But if you can get away from areas, you know, we're in central Missouri here. We're between St. Louis and Kansas City. I'm about 30 minutes north of Columbia, which is about 150,000. University town, you know, several hospitals. There's a lot of people that work down there, but we're out here in the country enough that we aren't being compromised too much by a lot of buildup of houses. So you've got to be willing to relocate. That's one of the deals. And I really think, you know, there's a lot of people that own land that, don't have, that do not know how to manage it. And so that's where we come in. Uh, we go out and find these idle pieces of land, and we lease them. And, you know, give you a short story, or a short answer to a long story, is we've got 16 farms today. Hmm. And in 1999, I leased my first farm and got myself out of debt by leasing other people's land and running and custom grazing other people's cattle on it. So I guess the answer would be you've got to be willing to relocate and you've got to be willing, of course, to work, which I think a lot of young people are. I mean, they've got the energy and the gumption to do it, and they just don't have the opportunity. Could you give me a little bit more uh, perspective on what you mean by idle pieces of land? Are these uh, mismanaged pieces or unmanaged pieces of land or non-operator landowners, absentee owners? What What are you talking about there? Yeah, it runs all over the map. It starts, first of all, 
you cannot lease land. I shouldn't say you cannot. It's just going to be more difficult if you're trying to compete against row crop land. So if you're in an area where cash rent's going for 150 to $350 an acre, forget it. You're not going to be able to lease that land because that landowner is getting that income. He's not going to give you a lease, a manageable lease on there that you can even make the lease payment. Not running cattle. Um, it's going to have to be some kind of specialty crop to even do that. And see where the cattlemen are a little bit um, hamstring is we don't, and I think it's a good thing. Uh, I don't think we need the, the subsidies, but when you're competing against crop farmers to get subsidies, it's pretty tough, you know. So you've got to get on land that is idle or it's in rolling hill country, and it's not suitable for farming. If you farm it, your soil is going to leave that kind of land, and uh, that's what we go after. So we go after lands. I've went after stuff that nobody wanted, okay. I look for a land that's been abused. So if it's got broom sedge all over it because people have been hanging it every year and not putting any fertilizer back, it doesn't have any fence on it. Maybe the homestead is run down. There's nobody living there anymore, just a lot of junk laying around. I can go in there and clean that up, and I'll build a new fence on it, but I've got to have a minimum of 7- to 10-year lease. I won't do anything less than 7 years because it takes you a little while to get that thing cleaned up, and, you know, you want to get the grass growing, and you can do that with livestock. Uh, unrolling hay on it, good grazing management, you can turn a farm around fairly quickly. But again, if you've got to go find a farm that's got everything there, it's got the corral, it's got uh, a good road into it, good fences, the pasture's in good shape, it's got good water. Uh, around here, you're going to give um, probably you know 40 to $75 an acre for that. So uh, our leases run more in the neighborhood of you know, five to ten dollars an acre, and some of them are free. <laughs> We've got uh, three farms we don't pay anything for, but they look like show places, and they used to look like junk. You know, so we are a land service company. We go in. I call ourselves landscapers. We'll go in and landscape that dude where it looks really nice, and the landowners are just flabbergasted that their place looks like a show place now. And so that's their payment from us is to take a rundown piece of property improve it, put a fence on it, and make it look nice. So you sound like the Bud Williams of land. You find undervalued <laughs> land and you turn it into you turn it into land that is productive. We've been very successful at that. That's what we do. And give you an idea, I just got my last lease um a year and a half ago. It's hundred and twenty acres. And it I've been watching it for years. But the people that live back there Ended up being a drug house, and uh, they they got rid of the drugs, got rid of the people, and they hauled the hot, they hauled the house off, okay, because they were cooking meth in it, and um, <laughs> got rid of that fiasco. And I approached the landowners, and they were just like, "You're kidding me! You want to do something with this?" I'm like, "Yeah," because my farm's hooked onto it on two sides, mm. okay. And that's where this gets kind of neat. If you can, I tell people when you get started. If you can just get a land base, what I call a home base, it doesn't have to be over maybe five to ten acres, and that's your home base. Find that place where there's other idle land laying around you, where there's nobody doing anything with it. And in Missouri, then you travel around, you just parts of Missouri, especially there's a lot of ground out here nobody's doing much with. It's got trees growing up on it, it's got sprouts, there's no fence on it. Maybe people own it just to hunt on it. 
Um, we have some hunter owners now. We've got uh, two of those that own the land just for honey. And uh, we've been able to go in and make the hunting better. And that's a big mistake, that mistaken uh, truth that is being spoke all the time, that cattle destroy hunting. They destroy wildlife. No, they don't. Not if you're managing it. We're not talking about using the, using the Columbus method on these farms. And the Columbus method is you, you turn the cows out in the spring, you discover them in the fall, okay? <laughs> that doesn't work. You have got to manage these farms. And with good management, we can, we can keep about 30 to 40% clover in every pasture. Well, guess what? Our farms now are just magnets for deer and turkey. And so we're really harvesting some nice rack deer now. And so that's, again, that's our payment back to those hunters that have land. And they're just flabbergasted because they're used to seeing it look like a carpet. When somebody runs cattle and they don't move them, the whole farm looks like a carpet. And, yes, there's not a deer on it. There's no food for anything. You can't manage land like that. Yeah, I've, I've over my the course of 50, this is episode 53, so good a time as any to mention that if you want to find uh links to anything that we mentioned today on the show it'll be at workingcows.net slash 53 uh workingcows.net slash 53 will be the show notes page for today and over the course of you know the previous 52 episodes one of the things that i've gathered as a nugget is that wildlife and their presence on your ranch are a tip of the hat to you and your management practices absolutely that's exactly right, Clay, because these farms that we had, I tell people when we got them, you know, a rabbit would have had to pack us lunch to make it cross. <laughs> there just wasn't anything there. You know, I'm sorry, but people talk about CRP, you know, being good for a while. Man, you walk through a CRP field, that's pretty depressing. There's not much out there. Just a big old dead patch, you know. You need living organisms. You need life. You need something going on out there. You need biology in the soil. Deer aren't stupid. They're going to go to where the, the bricks and the grass and the, and the tits are the highest, the highest energy. That's what they select. That's how they, that's how they survive. So, yeah, when you bring livestock in, and that's what we're doing. We're pulse grazing it. So we hit an area, and then we're gone. We don't come back until it's fully recovered. Well, how long is that? Well, in the spring, it might be 30 days. In the summer drought, it may be 90 days or more longer, but we don't come back. And so basically 99% of our farms, there's nothing on them, you know. And so the wildlife and the turkey and all this other stuff, we're starting to see some rabbits. Rabbits are almost extinct around here, and now we're starting to see rabbits come back. So that's kind of cool. Uh, what percentage of the year are you managing cows are do you are you managing cows year round or is it just the spring and the summer or how, how is that working for you so we are a, a full-time uh, 365 cow so we're a cow calf operation uh, we're selling grass-fed beef we're in the seed stock business now we're selling grass genetics uh, cows and bulls um, that's been really well for us we've been selecting animals that are work just solely on forage and if they don't, we just get rid of them. And we've done that now for over uh, 16 years. And so we've, what we found out is our cattle size has come down. We're now in that 1,000 to 1,100-pound range. And the legs, they just got great big guts on them to hold a lot of forage. And a lot of that's been us. We select for that. If a cow or a heifer doesn't have a nice big gut on her, we just get rid of them. Because we know that that's not going to make a cow that can stay fat on our grass through the wintertime. 
we graze through the winter, and we do keep hay as an emergency. If we get a really deep snow or loss of ice, we've got it there. We can feed them hay, but that's not the backbone of our operation. We're feeding about a half a bale for the whole winter per animal unit. So for every 1,000 pounds of weight in that herd, we're feeding about a half a bale. So that's, you know, that's pretty economical. When you winter a cow for you know, 20, 30 bucks a hay, that's, that's doable. You know, we can do that. Sure. Well, that was one of the more interesting nuggets that I grabbed out of these episodes. Episode 20 was with Jim Garrish, and he said that he much prefers the winners in Idaho to the winners in Missouri because of the lack of ice in Idaho, which was kind of surprising yeah. to me. Yeah, we we get our share of ice here, and I've seen cows, it gets so thick on occasion that it, it will hold the cow up. <laughs> wow. And they'll actually take off like they got skates on, you know, if they're on the side of a hill kind of thing, so... You know, when it gets like that, you just can't graze through the ice because they can't push through it. So you've got to get something out there for them. But that's not very often. I mean, this last year, I think we had one. This last year, we had one ice storm, and it lasted like two days. But, again, you need to protect yourself, you know, and your coward's worth something. So you better – I tell people, it's insurance. Just keep a few bales, and if you don't need them, that's fine. But if you don't have insurance on your house and it burns down, you'll wish you had you know, that kind of thing. So you mentioned the calving season and uh, the grass genetics and some of those things that you're doing. Those are big management decisions. So what percentage of the cows that you are in charge of the management of do you own? We own 100%. Okay. So in 2007 was my last year of custom grazing. I used, I used other people's money money as in their cattle and their, their hay. They would buy the hay. And I enrolled their hay on my lease farm. That's how I built the fertility up. I didn't have any money. I mean, I was broke in 1999. I was working 40 hours a week in town, uh, trying to do this on the side, and I was in a really miserable, you know, long extended period of my life. I was going through a divorce, and uh, so it was, it was really tough on me. But when I started leasing land and running other people's cattle, all of a sudden I started getting a check in my mailbox every month. And at the peak of it, we were running, you know, five to 600 cows. And do the math on that at 70, 80 cents a day per cow, per day, per month, it added up to some real money. And so I was able to stockpile enough savings. I paid off all my debt. I bought, we bought our entire cow herd, and uh, it's all paid for today. We're out of debt, and I quit my job in town, and I'm a full-time rancher today. But I got there running other people's cattle. But today, now that I own my own, I'm making probably, I don't know, probably four to five times what I was custom grazing because we, we're running some really, we've developed a really good class of cattle where the demand is through the roof. We just can't raise enough of them. It's, and that's a good problem to have when you're marketing. <laughs> There's a shortage, you know, the price is always going to remain pretty good. And the shortage today in cattle is the grass genetic. They're just not out there. Uh, these, these cows that are weigh 1,000, 1,100 pounds, wean off a 500-pound calf on grass with no grain, and stay fast through the winter and breed back and give you another calf. By God, they're hard to find. <laughs> <laughs> I know, because I custom graze for, you know, eight, eight years, and golly, some of these big old cows, which is the norm today, I mean, you go to the cell barn and watch those cows go through, I just about fall out of my seat. You know, 13, 1,400 pounds. Some of them bigger than that. And oh, yeah. You put a cow like that on grass in Missouri when it's 10 below zero out, they're, 
They're not going to keep their weight on. That's what it's about. We're in the grass business. The cattle are just the harvester. They're a tool to harvest the grass. And, of course, we have sheep now, too. We're running chickens. We've got 600 layers out here. And we've got pigs in the woods. And the hair sheep has been a welcome addition because they go after the stuff the cattle don't eat. And so we've got these waste farms. There's lots of weeds and brush and, and, and multiple rose bushes and thorn trees. And guess what? That's the primary food source of a hair sheep. They love that type of stuff. And so just grazing sheep behind your cows, that's the way we do it, the sheep are making the cattle pasture better. Plus, they're selling lambs off a of brush. So we would have been out brush hogging it. <laughs> so it's just really a win-win when you can figure out how to get the sheep in behind the cow. You, you have talked a little bit about your start in 1999. Was there a history of ranching in your family or uh, in your own life prior to 1999? Or how? what, what did that... Yeah, I... I was born and raised on a dairy farm. I was born in northern Minnesota. We moved here to Missouri in 1965, and we brought the dairy herd with us. It uh, wasn't too long. We found out Dad couldn't make a living doing dairy at that scale, and we sold the cows, but we kept a cow, and I milked the cow my whole the time I was in second grade until I left the house. I always milked the cow, and we had a few beef cattle, but I did not know anything about grazing. I mean, I didn't. Uh, my dad was a crop farmer. Well, more or less, he liked to he liked to plow the ground, and so grass is just something you gave the cattle. And I have to hold my hats off to um, well, my first book, No Risk Ranching, I, ded- I dedicated to Steve Vima, and Steve Vima told me about Jim Garish's grazing school up in North Missouri. That's what changed. That's what changed all this was meeting Jim and going to his grazing schools when he's at the University of Missouri. And you know, I came home from that Linnaeus grazing school. My gosh, I was so fired up I couldn't hardly stand still realizing that, wait a minute, it's the management. And Jim termed it management-intensive grazing. Too many people leave out the term management and they think intensive, <laughs> and they beat this stuff out of the ground. They don't, they don't manage it. They just beat the stuffing out of it. It's not about beating the stuffing out of it. It's about managing. You've got to leave some grass behind. And that's a hard thing for, for cattlemen to get over. I, I deal with it. <laughs> I'm a landowner. You know, these old guys have been out here for years. Well, Greg, why are you leaving the, why are you walking the cows away from my farm? You got two weeks worth of grass left out here. I'm like, I know, I'm going to leave it. Well, you're wasting it. You're not wasting grass when you leave it behind. You're going to have a lot more grass to graze when you come back because you left them behind. It's a solar collector. The more you take off, the more you shut down the plant. And so that's what we're focused on, just taking the tip, moving the cattle, super high animal performance. The animals are just pig fat because they're getting the best part of the plant. They're trampling some of that on the ground, and then we leave. So you mentioned uh, cow size as, a, as an important component of your success in ranching. Now, let's look at the custom grazer and somebody who's trying to start out. Did You you never turned away anybody who was willing to pay their bills, right? I mean, you, you took in... You're right. <laughs> and I'm glad you brought that up. That's exactly right. As a matter of fact, uh, I, I used the term... Clay, I actually slept with the devil. <laughs> what I mean by that is when people brought their cattle to me, they poured Ivermec down their back. That's what I got. I mean, it was a great time to pour them is when they're going down the chute. Or they'd reach in the trailer and just pour it on their back in the trailer. Well, then all that Ivermec, guess where it ended up? On my farm in North Manure Pass. Well, it killed the biology in the manure, so I wasn't getting any breakdown of the manure path on my farm. 
Just remember, the most valuable thing coming out of that cow is that manure pile. And when you put all these ivermectins in there, it ends up in the manure. Heck, the earthworms won't even break it down. So you've taken a, a live, you turned it into a liability. You took a manure path that was an asset and turned it into a liability. <laughs> Forget about the dung beetles. We're just talking about common sense. You don't want to go broke. I mean, it aggravates me that oh, I've been on ranches. I was on a huge ranch in Texas. I do consulting all over the United States. This guy went broke. Born I met spring and fall, regardless or not, there was millions of cow paths, big farm, 500 cow-calf pairs, and those manure paths were still there three years later. You could, they were not breaking down. The fire ants weren't even eating them. <laughs> I mean, it, they, were, they were toxic. So, yeah, I'd slept with the devil. I, I did a lot of that stuff, but you know what? I did it to make a living, and there's nothing wrong with doing it starting out, but just realize down the road that that may not be a good practice, you know, when you're starting to... When you're trying to stay in business, and manure is a big part of that, the cows are deposited across your landscape. Um, be careful. But yeah, it's a, it's that's a big one. I I took big cows. I mean, I I took eighteen hundred pounds <laughs> registered cow. I did, and I can walk you over today on this one particular farm where I got. Uh, I think it was eleven days it rained without stopping. Hmm. I can take you to that farm today, and that was. Um, around 18 years ago. <laughs> and you you still can't hardly ride a four-wheeler car. <laughs> so, bigger cows, if you want them to tear up your path, if you get you know, custom-grazed big cows, here, here's the recommendation I would have. Make darn sure you have a sacrifice paddock and have some hay in there. But when you do get these big downpours, you can walk those cows in there and, and feed them hay for a day or two or three until your pastures get solid enough again. Don't Continue moving them across your landscape. They will pug your entire farm. That's something I didn't do, and I paid for it. But these smaller cows, what, 1,100 pounds? I don't care how much it rains. I just keep moving them. And, I mean, you go out there, and you might find an imprint an inch or two deep, but you're not going to find something 8 or 10 inches deep. So just on a, a landscape where you're not plowing and compacting your soil, the, the big cows don't make any sense. And I, I get this all the time. The packers, oh, the packers. Packers this, the Packers this, they don't like the little carcasses. I don't worry about it. I can run a lot more of these smaller cows than you see in these big ones. They're not going to tear my farm up. Yep. So. Yep, I've said it before, uh, probably maybe not on the on the Working Cows podcast, but if I can if I can wean two calves or even one and a half calves on the same number of acres that you can wean one big calf, most times I'm going to win that, that math. That's right. That's right. And here's the big one that uh, Teddy Gentry, they've done some data study, and there's some numbers out there that conclude that for every 100 pounds of cow weight that you go over 1,000 pounds, you lose 10% fertility in that cow. Hmm. So if you've got 1,400-pound cows, <laughs> do the math on that. <laughs> yeah. I've got an idea for a T-shirt that says "Fertility Drives the Bus," and uh, I I got to find a cartoonist to draw it for me. So if I've got any cartoonists listening to the Working Cows podcast, hit me up at workingcows.net/slash/contact because I've got a great idea. I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so you mentioned one of the things that it's going to take to get started is a willingness to move to a different area of the country where there is. Uh, grass available. Uh, what else? Are there any other things that we should be thinking about as we look to get started? 
Absolutely. Go to every grading school that makes sense, that is close to you. If you can afford to get there, it's not going to bankrupt you. Go to it. Go, you need to network. You need to, you need to go find a group of farmers that are very successful grazers and become a mentor. I mean, mentor to them. Watch, watch what they're doing. Um, we have a group up in North Missouri called the Green Hills Farm Project. We meet once a month. And everybody brings a potluck, a, a dish, and we have a, a meal, and we go out and look and discuss what that farmer's doing on his farm. And if you don't have a grazing group in your ear and you've got a whole bunch of young guys getting started, man, start your own. There's just two of you. See, there's nobody out here that's going to back you up doing this type of grazing when you start out. I mean, it's just, I still have neighbors that think I'm just nuts. <laughs> and, you know, that's, that's kind of, I kind of like that, you know. You've got to be willing to have a pretty hard shell when you start out, so get ready for that. Don't look for people to embrace you. You're not going to get that. You're going to be ridiculed because you're different. You're doing things different, and it makes people very uncomfortable when you do that. And they're going to ridicule you. They're going to try and get you to come back into the fold of doing, the, doing it the same way everybody else is doing it. I'm going to give you a little secret. There's not a whole lot of people making money today in the cattle business. I talked to a guy yesterday. He's given up his lease. 250 acres, beautiful farms. He's like, Greg, there's just no money in these cattle anymore. But got to his farm. I mean, he's got the latest and greatest tractor. There's the hay binds. There's that John Deere baler. Uh, he's got that 35-foot rake. He's got a hay hauling trailer. I mean, he's got everything. Well, everything that you put down, that's a, what we call overhead, it's got to service. Your calves that you sell have got to service that debt. And did those calves ask for you to own that John Deere tractor? No. Did they ask you to buy that $60,000 John Deere bailer? No. So when you say there's no money in the beef cattle bins today, you better go look in the mirror. A lot of it's pointing right back at you. You probably got way too much overhead. So you know, when I started out, I'll be honest, I didn't even have a four-wheeler. All I had was my truck. I had a 1979 Toyota pickup. <laughs> and it's a piece of junk, but it, it got me to work. It, 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 it allowed me to you know, run these cattle. And when I was custom grazing, I didn't need to own a trailer. I didn't need to own a big truck. The cattle owners paid for all the hauling. So I didn't need to own anything. So get, go out there and find you a piece of ground that looks like crap. You can talk to the landowner. And if you're really good and you get started, there's going to be neighbors that look at what you're doing. And, and then that you can go and ask them, well, would you like your place to look like this? And try and get a lease. And, you know, here's the deal. You can't afford to pay a whole lot for a lease if you're going to work on it a lot. Because if you're if the landowner doesn't want to put any more money into that land, that's up to you. So you've got to come up with a wire in the post. And there's ways, ways to do that. High tensile wire is cheap. I mean, 4,000-foot roll, $79. You can fence a lot of ground with a single high sense of wire and, and, and move cattle around on that farm and, and start to make some money. What are some of the best ways to train cows to that wire? The best way to train them is to have a, a pretty good lot that when the cattle owner drops them off on your lease farm that you can hold those cows on, let's say, a half an acre. I wouldn't go any, you know, I wouldn't go any more than half an acre, maybe even a quarter acre. That would be a little wire fence, a couple barbs on top, and then I have an offset hot wire about a foot on the inside of that fence all the way around it. 
And then I, I just tied aluminum cans to it. And I'm telling you, within about two days, there wasn't a cow or a stalker in that group that didn't know what those cans were. And they'll go up and lick them. And you want a good charger, don't go buy that charger that's at the local farm store. There's an old cheap plug-in. Uh, these old cheap ones, I'm not going to name names. I don't want to make anybody mad. But I'll tell you the ones we use. And that's a, a Safix and a Cyclops. Those chargers will knock the stuffing out of you. And there, there's some other ones. Gallagher, you can use Gallagher. Um, but those are the three. The Safix, Gallagher, or Cyclops. And uh, put you in at least three to four ground rods. Most people don't put in enough ground rods. And when you fasten it to your charger, don't use a piece of copper wire. Use galvanized high pencil wire or that buried wire, but don't use copper. And don't use copper ground rods, galvanized. You've got to use galvanized rods, a minimum of six feet long. Because when you go to somebody's front lawn, try that electric and stuff, it didn't work. You go there and put the meter on, there's no voltage on it, and it's because they don't have a good ground, or they're using a cheap charger. So, yeah. It works. We've got 16 farms. All we use is a high tensile electric fence on every single one of them, and our cows do not get out, period. And if I was going to lease a farm against a blacktop, just do five wires. Don't play around. Put in five wires of high tensile, three hot, two grounds. And uh, gravel roads, if you're leasing a farm against a gravel road, I'm pretty comfortable running four, four hot wires. But the interior fences, that's all single, just one single wire for your padding conditions. And don't put in a lot of padding. Get your water put in there, and then use, we use temporary posts and temporary fences, these geared reels. And we've taken up a lot of high-tensile paddocks and just use these reels, and it gives you so much more flexibility when you don't chop up your farm in a bunch of little tiny permanent paddocks. It just gives you so much more different areas you can move them. In the springtime, you can move them a lot faster because you've got bigger paddocks. Uh, you can adjust that, and in the in the winter time, when it's raining, you got mud. You don't have all these darn gates. I hate gates. If you got gate, you got a mud hole. Well, I I told you I wouldn't keep you any longer than thirty minutes, and we're we're kind of up against that. So I appreciate your time today. I'd like to give you an opportunity to share with people where they could go to get in touch with you or see where you're going to be in the future if you're doing any kind of schools or or uh, uh, consulting work or anything like that. Yeah, um, I'm going to be, uh, well, first of all, our, our website is greenpasturesfarm.net, and uh, talks to, on that website, it tells a lot about where I'm speaking at, and uh, we do hold an annual grazing school every year here at our farm. That's always the first week of May. It's a three-day, and Ian Mitchell Ennis, the South African rancher, him and I give it right here at the farm. And then uh, I'm going to be speaking several different places. I won't go into all You can go to our website. And it, it gives those spots where I will be giving some conferences. But, um, yeah, it's been good. Uh, you know, we, we, we're excited about agriculture. And I do what I can to try and help young people get started in this. And it's, it's really fantastic because I was out this, just this week. And um, it was on Monday. I was on a farm. Young people just got started. Golly, they did everything wrong. And, you know, now they're facing all this debt. They've got all this stuff they, they shouldn't have bought. And I'm like, man, if you'd have just done a little bit of research and, and went out and some of these conferences and talked to some of these more seasoned grazers and jumping in and just spending all this unneeded money, they, they now they're, they're between a rock and a hard place. And um, I think we may get them out of it, but it's going to be tough. It's going to be a long pull because they've got their stuff in debt over stuff they didn't need to spend. So... I guess that's the thing that I would recommend is before you jump in and put a lot of hard-earned money into it, 
It doesn't cost anything to read some books and all this stuff on the Internet. Uh, there's another really good uh, resource out there. It's called On Pasture. It's free. It comes in your web. It comes into your email every day. I'm sorry, every Tuesday. There's five free articles in there and videos and people all over the United States are putting in, you know, doing some pretty neat things on there. So it's called On Pasture and just sign up for it. Yep, we've had Kathy Voth on the Working Cows podcast talking about training cows to eat weeds, and so yep, that's her, yep. her deal. Yep. So she's so, she's good, and and we'll put a link to her episode in the show notes page, and we'll put a link to uh, Greg's website and, and and some other things. Again, that show notes page is workingcows.net slash fifty three, and we'll we'll have links to some of the stuff that Greg has mentioned there. So, Greg, thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. All right, nice nice talking with you, Clay, and you have a good day. You too. Thanks. Lots of good practical stuff there. Really interesting history with Greg. Really appreciate his openness and sharing his history and how he got started. And hopefully there's some takeaways there for people who are looking to get started about how they could maybe do that as well. Next week on the show, looking to bring back Mary Jo Ehrman from Farming Without the Bank, talking more about leverage this time and about what we need to keep in mind as we seek to use leverage responsibly. So we look forward to that next week on the Working Cows podcast for episode 54. We invite you to visit workingcows.net to subscribe to the show via iTunes or Stitcher. You'll also find detailed show notes pages, resources from our guests, and the industry leaders who have influenced them. For more ideas on putting your cows to work for you in a more profitable way, tune in next week.